we really focus on on places where we've created the mess, mm. like Iraq, and we need to be a part of the solution because we were part of the mess. We can't yeah. say, oh, we, we toppled Saddam and said we were going to bring you, you know, Disneyland, and instead we brought you ISIS. But now we're tired and we're going to go because it's not our job and we're not the world's police. No, we have a moral obligation. That was Jason Jones. And you're listening to Choose Life, a board war podcast for peace. This is part two of a three-part conversation. Choose life that we might be. Choose peace that we might see our tomorrow. Let justice roll like a river, flow like a river down. We are going to jump into part two, beginning with a few moments before the end of part one. Here's Jason. I don't fight the left because I'm on the right. I fight the liberalism on the right. My goal is really to help take all these young reactionaries that are sort of offended at the illiberalism of the left, and now they're becoming illiberal right-wingers. Mm-hmm. If you see a lot of internet sensations, they're young people who are scandalized by the illiberalism of the left, and they run right into becoming an illiberal rightist. So I hope this all makes sense, but it's something I'm very passionate about. No, it, it makes sense because when we're reactionary, we become the thing we, I think it was Heimlich Himmler who said before World War II ended, we are winning because even if we lose this war, our ideals have taken root in our enemies. German philosophy that Heidegger is celebrated on universities today. Mm-hmm. John Locke is disparaged. The way people talk about Ayn Rand. If only they would talk about Heidegger that way. The same people that will preen and mm-hmm. mock Ireland or John Locke or Bastiat or Edmund Burke, the same people will speak glowingly of Sartre and Heidegger. Apologists for the biggest, I mean, Heidegger became a member of the Nazi party. So Himmler was correct. Yes, Himmler was correct. And if you look at the the collapse of the Russian Revolution into illiberalism, Mm -hmm. the the liberals in Russia that were fighting for revolution quickly got swamped by the liberals. The liberal Weimar Republic, you know, quickly collapsed because the illiberal right, the Nazis, were waging a war against the illiberal left, the Stalinists. And I, I read the writings of Stalin and Hitler. They're on my and Trotsky. They're on my. So 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 we've got two sides that aren't overly concerned about the the rights of human individuals. Yeah, not at all. No, not at all. Nor the truth. Uh, or, or, or being noble. It's just ignobility. So, yeah. James, well, I want to move on to this fascination you had uh, as a boy with these vulnerable ethnicities, to what you're doing today with movie to movement and hero, and the stand you take, for example, with the Kurds that, that lose your friends. Tell us about that. Well, it actually, you know, wasn't born, and I wasn't fascinated with them because they were vulnerable. I was just fascinated. So I was really into martial arts as a boy. So I started teaching myself the Japanese language the best I could in, like, junior high. You know, I would get cassettes on tape that I would steal from the bookstore. God forgive me. Don't judge me. Don't <laughs> me. You crazy croipers, you. I was a godless little child, you know, but I, you know, I, and I would study martial arts and I read books on Shintoism and Buddhism. And I read the Kojiki and, you know, and the tale of Denji and 
And so I was really into Japan. And then when I discovered that there was this weird Caucasian minority uh, that I knew, you know, but it wasn't that they were vulnerable. It was just uncanny. And then the Uyghur, a Turkic Caucasian people in East Turkestan. And, and, and it wasn't until later that it kind of, it just, just, it, it kind of, it's strange that, that I did have this fascination as a boy, but really what happened when the vulnerable communities was really birthed, not thinking about the vulnerabilities of these communities, but at my privilege. Mm. And it was three months after the abortion. I was on Cobra Gold, a deployment to Thailand in the middle of nowhere. We had an interpreter from Thailand with us. And there was a man. I remember we were, we were on a 472 hour road march across Thailand. And there was a man holding his son who was very skinny and sickly looking. And I asked the, but oh, the fence, I saw the fence before I saw the father and son. And it looked like out of an old cowboy movie. And there was this decrepit cow with a bell, you know? Mm. And, and I remember, I remember thinking like, Oh, this is like an old cowboy movie, except for that sick cow, you know? And then I see the father and his son and I see the father's hugging this boy so hard. And, and the boy looks clearly mortally ill. And I said to my interpreter, what's wrong with that boy? And he goes, he looks like he has malaria or something. I don't know. Mm. And I remember seeing all I need to know in that father's eyes. And what I saw in that dad's eyes is what I felt still about the abortion that just happened. Mm. I had a moment of solidarity of being helpless. You- this man's helpless and I'm helpless. And I remember thinking, but I will never be helpless again. I'm an American. I'm going to work hard, study hard, provide, have a family, provide for my family. And I want to spend the rest of my life sharing the privilege of being an American. And that's another thing I'll say. I think, I think God that I went into the infantry before I went to a university because, you know, being born to a teenager, then I had two children at 18 and 19. I had two more kids. I had two kids. Uh, That's another story while I was in the army. So being a teen parent, child of a teen parent, who was the child of a teen parent, growing up in what they would call poverty, but it was really just, you know, working class America with potable water and libraries and bookstores and all the things that we have and we're rich. So what I say is I, I discovered, I didn't know I was underprivileged till I knew how privileged I was. Mm-hmm. That's something that the army gave me an opportunity to see that the Anglo American political community with its order, with its liberalism, with its separation of powers, with its representative government, with our prosperity, that I am privileged. I am, and I'm going to use that privilege. And I want to use that privilege to serve the vulnerable for the rest of my life. And that was a decision I made, you know, as a 17 year old, my first year in the army, started taking college classes, became really intense with my study. And uh, the two books that I thought were going to be my keys to everything were Machiavelli's The Prince and Plato's Republic, of which I laminated both of them. (laughs) And they would go with me everywhere in my rucksack. But it was from there, I just, yeah, I've been addled by the idea of fathers not being able to protect their children from violence. That's my psychological diagnosis for my work, that Mm. I can protect my child from violence. So I am going to do everything I can for the rest of my life to protect as many children from violence as possible. There's a powerful image. I I was one of the images that struck me on your Facebook page, Jason, is a father holding this this young, like a toddler or a baby, and 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 the baby thinks that everything is fine, and and the father has these arrows in his back, 
protecting the child, and and it was a really powerful image. On my wall, I have this famous Renaissance painting of Aeneas carrying his father out of Troy as it burns with his wife and and carrying his wife and his son. His wife behind, and he's carrying his father and holding his son. Yes, and 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 that 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 meme that I shared recently. There's another famous painting called a Stick Carrier. I saw it at the Milwaukee Art Institute, and it's just this beautiful painting from the 30s of a father and a daughter. The father's carrying all these sticks, and it's from the 17th century or something. You know, mm-hmm. some old peasant carrying sticks on his back, and he's broken and his back is broken he's carrying all these sticks but his daughter is gliding and smiling and picking flowers Mm. i became a father at 18 well 17 of course then that child was destroyed and had a son at 18 and 19 so i've been a father since i was 18 and you know i quickly realized that the rest of my life i wanted to order to protect my children but but our children we live in a human family and i can't protect my family I cannot protect. I tell my children when I go on these crazy trips to Iraq or Syria or to Africa or to Sudan, wherever I'm going. And, you know, my wife, sometimes we have some very serious conversations, like I'm getting ready to do a documentary in Yemen. And my kids can't help but miss how tense it is in the house before these trips. Mm-hmm. But I would think I know that my, your father is going there because of how much he loves you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that how safe and secure and beautiful your life is, the thought that other children are being exposed to the worst forms of extreme violence is maddening to me because I see you in those positions. And if I was, and as a filmmaker, as an American, we're powerful. We are powerful. And, and not because of anything I ever did. I'm the dumbest person I've ever met. I'm the most immoral person I've ever met. I didn't come from privilege other than being an American. I didn't have connections. But I was able to order my life in a way now that I, I have very influential relationships in the entertainment industry, in government, in politics. And if I'm a Yazidi father in the Nineveh Plains, there's nothing in the world I can do to protect my family from Turkey or from ISIS. Mm-hmm. Right. But unfortunately, I, or fortunately, you know, I, I have the power that father doesn't have, and, and and I want to share that influence with him, and 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 that's my apostolate, and that's, and, and that's that's my apostolate. That's how I love how you move from your own family to the greater human family. There's this thing I say sometimes. I, I say we're we're all one human family, and the earth is our common home. And therefore, all violence is domestic violence. Oh, I love that, brother. Well, you know, and, and I've become so close with Muslims and Yazidis and, you know, and Jew- I have friends who are Zionists. I have friends who are in the Muslim Brotherhood. I have, they're my friends and they hold to ideologies that are repulsive to me. I, but I love them. And they're my friends and they're so decent. And I just want to be an example to them. And it's hard, you know, as Americans, because it's hard for us to understand these sort of tribal hatreds because yeah. we sort of live divorced from history, right? Oh, very much. Very much. I could talk for three so hours about really how divorced we are from history. Theory. But I, I want to, I remember, I remember we were at the uh, Rehumanized Conference in New Orleans and I asked you about the time that you 
went to see this Al-Qaeda warlord and you were like, which time? And I said, you went and talked to an Al-Qaeda warlord. And what you said to me was, Thad, people are people. And it was kind of shocking and kind of normal. And I tell people, you know, not everyone who disagrees with you a Nazi. And guess what? The Nazis weren't even Nazis. They weren't like soulless robots. They weren't stormtroopers. They were human beings swept away by the spirit of their age. And so I went to meet when I met with this Al-Qaeda uh, Janjaweed, the Janjaweed in Sudan, I was prepared, you know, in all my righteous indignation and self-preening, you know, polishing my halo. And I was going to go there and be like, what's what? And I just found him very charming. He had three young wives that were repulsive. He asked me how many wives and cows I had. And I said, one wife and no cows. He said, why is such a poor man so far from home? <laughs> You know, and, and, I, and it reminded me, you know, I should share you a similar story. I befriended an elderly man in Hawaii who had been an SS officer. He was in his late 80s, and this was in the, in the late 90s. And I had a Jewish friend, and I was telling him how I like this old guy. And I, and I, I was trying to get my friend who was Jewish. He was actually Jewish from India. And, and one of the reasons we became friends is he was so fascinated. He wanted to learn more about the Jews of India from me. Because when I say, hey, you're Jewish, right? And he's like, how old make you think that? Don't you, you know, I'm Indian. And I'm like, nah, I know all about your community. We became friends. It's in the late 90s. And I introduced him to my buddy, Gunther. Gunther was such a broken soul. Telling me about meeting Hitler. but talking about meeting Rommel. And he was in one of these programs where he actually, because he was worked in a specialty in a field where he went right into the U.S. Army. Can you imagine? But he was, he was in the Hitler Youth growing up. So he had no chance. He had no chance. Of course he was going to be swept away by this contagion. And my Jewish buddy, who I loved so much, was like, I'm going to spit in his face and I'm going to hate him. And I'm going to cry just talking about it. To see these two guys, this young Indian Jew from Toronto, hanging out with this old German guy who was a Nazi, who was in the Hitler Youth, laughing and smiling and loving each other hit it off better than they hit it off with me you know <laughs> and uh and i maybe, just maybe you really are the worst person in the world jason no i am no trust me <laughs> you know like prick my conceit at the wrong time cut me off in traffic like you know disagree with me abruptly in front of my wife and then it all comes out but no so this guy you know and that's what our work is to do, right? Our work is to be in solidarity with the other. And yeah. So when we're talking about vulnerable people, Jason works with, with stateless people, which in international law is defined as a person who is not considered as a national by any state under the operation of of law and sometimes those people are are i mean basically they're refugees when they're at home and they're refugees when they go anywhere they they but they're uh, not without territory right like the kurds they, they've lived there forever but right. they don't have a state and people will say well they should just leave leave what <laughs> it's their home right right and or the idea of nation state even was in anyone's head. Exactly. As a matter of fact, when you talk about, you know, Malcolm X saying, I didn't land on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock landed on me. Like the, the nations that we know now as like, you know, in World War II, I mean, excuse me, in World War One, you you had these these two factions, you know, Germany and the and the Ottoman Empire on one side, and you had you know France and England, and eventually the U.S. on the on the other side, and and 
but the the English side and the German side were essentially you say we're, we're divorced of our history. They they were fighting over access to oil to fuel navies to go commit what I call acts of militarism, and that is using your military not to defend your country, but using your military for political and economic gain. They wanted to colonize more people in 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 Africa, and and before that war ended, what was the Ottoman Empire? Uh, France and England just drew a map and decided what the countries were going to be, and the Kurds had no part in that decision. Oh, but worse, they did actually. Oh, run did they? Did they? I did not know this. Tell me this. Originally, they did. There was going to be an independent Kurdistan, but the French and the English then decided no. Let's use them as a weapon oh my to destabilize gosh. these other states. Right. So when you hear Westerners say. Well, the Muslims are violent, and the Muslim world has always been violent. Humans are violent, okay? Americans are, we've been in a lot of wars. Europe, World War I, World War II, the French Revolution. I mean, you know, but what, what happened is, it's not like there's been perpetual war in the Middle East. It's since the Sykes-Picot Agreement was literally designed to make the region a powder keg. Right. And it's worked according to plan. And the Kurds have been very useful. You will even hear American politicians, and I hate to say it, Republicans right now, but the Democrats were saying the same thing when Obama was in power. They like they play games having they take turns pretending that they have principles. They have principles when they have no power. When they have power, they don't have principles. It's a little game they play. Right. And but I'm hearing Republicans say we need the Kurds to be stateless. Kissinger was very open about this. We want to arm the Kurds to to harass Iraq or harass Iran or to harass Turkey, but we really don't want them to succeed. We just want to use them. Mm -hmm. That's despicable. That's absolutely despicable. And the way we talk so cavalierly, like that they, these stateless people should just move, like the Kurds should just move. I remember during the famine in the 80s, people were like, why do Ethiopians even live in Ethiopia? Um, you know what? Ethiopia is a very prosperous country. They knew how to feed themselves. You know, when, uh, you know, we know, we know that, that the world looked up to Ethiopia, these, these stateless people were there before the states. Right. Like, I, I like to say, you know, when, when, I don't know if you were there when, when Herb Garrity opened the Rehumanized Conference, and Herb was talking about, you know, there's this idea of, of legal personhood, you know, where, where the state says who a person is, and who a person is, you know, we have in our, in our history in the United States where we said that African Americans were three fifths of a person. We say that people who are not born yet are not legal persons. We 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 say that corporations are persons and they're not humans. And so we had human beings in places where there were no states. It's not so. It's it, it's it's quite, well now that now that you were a human being, but now that we have a state here, it doesn't recognize you as a legal person. So that's just that's how that's what we've come to, isn't it? Well, and that's why we exist. So I want to talk about the Vulnerable People Project real quick. Sure. One of my big concerns is to do no harm. It's do-gooders like us, right? That we want to go around, we want to do good. And we've been the, we're the imperialists. We're often the corrosive force in international politics. Like, I don't want to be a do-gooder. I don't want to be a colonialist. I don't want to be an imperialist. I don't want to go around the world trying to impose the Anglo-American political community on, on, on every place on earth, right? So we really focus on, on places where we've created the mess, mm. like Iraq, 
and we need to be a part of the solution because we were part of the mess. We can't yeah. say, oh, we, we toppled Saddam and said we were going to bring you, you know, Disneyland, and instead we brought you ISIS. But now we're tired and we're going to go because it's not our job and we're not the world's police. No. You break it, you bought it. You, you have a, It's like, you know, you have a one-night stand, you get a girl pregnant, you're like, well, I wasn't in it for that. I'm done. I'm gone. I didn't mean to be a father. No. You're going to be a daddy. You, you got child support, buddy, for 18 years. And we got, we got child support for Iraq. We have a moral obligation to, to protect those vulnerable communities we shattered. Because this, so this is why the v, I founded VPP is a project of my nonprofit. Governments, the State Department deals with the government of Iraq. They don't represent the Yazidi. The government of Iraq does not. They don't, care, they, they don't represent the Kurds. They don't represent the Chaldeans and the Assyrians and the Kakai. And all the beautiful diversity that's thrived in Iraq since prehistory. Now nah, they don't. They don't represent these folks. They they fight for the interest of of who controls the government in Baghdad. Same thing. Israel is fighting for Israel's interest in the region. Saudi for Saudi. Turkey for Turkey. Iran for Iran. The United States for the United States. As we just have seen with this ridiculous Machiavellian scheme, where Trump moved these troops in Syria, utter catastrophe. Mm. So BPP exists to try to work with these vulnerable ethnic and religious communities that are stateless to make sure their interests are being addressed. And we do that through films, through social media, through white papers and articles, and through direct influence campaigns with our relationships at the State Department, USAID, and Congress, etc. And so that's really our mission. Is, and, I, and I've always seen it no different than my pro-life work. When a young mother walks into a pregnancy center with a child in her womb, the two of them at that moment are the two most vulnerable people in the world. She could have 150 IQ and her father could, you know, be the president of Sony. doesn't matter. The moment that young girl is scared and alone and, and, and she's helpless, hmm. I want to be with her for her. And at the same time, you know, vulnerable communities are not weak. They're strong. They're smart. They have beautiful history. These countries are so beautiful. Their communities are so beautiful. But just like Poland, you know, when, when, when the Poles were vulnerable, they were stuck between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. Well, now, for example, you have the Kurds that are being drawn and quartered by Russia, Syria, the United States, Turkey, Iran. It's not that the Kurds are a weak people. These are not weak people. These are a very strong people. But they have been placed in an impossible situation. Hmm. And so what we want to do as an organization is represent the Kurds and the people who live amongst the Kurds that are vulnerable even to the Kurds, like the Assyrians, right? So you can work with one vulnerable community, and maybe there's another community living within that that's vulnerable to the one community you're helping. Mm-hmm. And so we, so it's, it gets to be very complex, and, and you have to be thoughtful. I am also aware of I am divorced from history. It's easy for me to be magnanimous, you know. When the Assyrians go, well, the Kurds participated in the Armenian Genocide. Yeah, they did. You know, get over it. That's easy for me to say, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so it, it, that's the, the challenge. But we break everything down into five core principles that we seek to do, which is just, number one, is an organization we work to communicate in everything we do that the human person has an incomparable beauty, dignity, and worth, that every human being should be protected from violence. Number two, that there's a transcendent moral order that is above 
the mob, that is above the guts, the state, that is above opinion, and that we should work to correspond our laws and our mores and our culture to that transcendent moral order. Three, subsidiarity, which is very important to me, that mm-hmm. take power away from distant, unelected bureaucracies and keep it as close to where there's accountability, local control. Most power should be in the family, the local community. Um, distant, unelected bureaucracy should be really almost powerless and impotent to, to initiate violence because we know all the great genocides and democides of the 20th century only happened after those free institutions of civil society. And this is why true liberalism is so important. And, and ideologies that are illiberal, whether they're quote-unquote progressive or on the right, are, are very dangerous. And, and left-wing and right-wing ideologies that are destructive to the free institutions of civil society actually pave the way for genocide because what have and democide because you have distant unelected bureaucracies mm-hmm. with the power to create violence with no accountability. And, and when um, we're distant... We don't have encounter, right? Exactly. We don't. We don't see these people. You don't. You don't see the look in that Thai father's eyes. You don't hear the wailing in that teen mother's voice when you're at a distance. Yeah, and that's why to me subsidiarity is is is, is so important. Then um, the humane economy, the just social order, it's set is, is grounded in private property rights, set within thoughtfulness. The commonwealth, you know, the commonwealth of the family, the community the polities that you live in, Hmm. uh, that you have private property rights, but you're a steward of those rights. Because again, we look at the 20th century and the great democides and genocides begin with disenfranchising people from the right to own private property. And then five is solidarity. Hmm. And this is really Gerard. To me, when I thought I understood the virtue of solidarity, Rene Gerard was like, you know, when you put glasses on, when you turn 45 and you don't think you need reading glasses until you put them on. And you're like, whoa, I needed reading glasses. Rene Girard was like that with me for solidarity. I thought I understood what solidarity was, but, but Rene Girard really clarified it for me, which is solidarity is carrying the burden of the vulnerable to the point that you are, you are as vulnerable as they are, that you become indistinguishable um, from them. Mm. And this is really almost mystical in the way it happens. You could see in the Covington Catholic boys that were marching at the March for Life, standing up against abortion, and then first a mob formed at the base of the Lincoln Memorial attacking them. And before you knew it, the whole world was mobbing these boys who didn't say a word, that stood there awkwardly, quietly, just doing nothing. And people assumed motives, assumed mm-hmm. and judged every, every, every inch every centimeter of their face looking for clues to how nefarious they were well that's because they were there standing in solidarity with the child in the womb uh which is the scapegoat of our our culture right so and and this quote that you just used about being indistinguishable and being as vulnerable as as they when i hear that i think of the incarnation of jesus christ who was you know god God didn't choose as God the Son to come as a Roman emperor. No. He came as a, a, an oppressed person under imperial control. You know, dirty, barefoot, suffering. And that, for me, is this huge model of, of solidarity. Well, and that's why I hope you include this in the eighth, you know, in your more secular version, because I was an, an atheist, I was a Randian. And I was attracted to Ayn Rand to me was 
you know, sort of her just radical standing up to the ideologies of evil of the 20th century, especially totalitarianism, collectivism, the obliteration of the free institutions of civil society, this exalted vision of the human person. But when I realized there was no anthropology that supported this, and it was missing any other sort of solidarity than really just kind of a contract that, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to recognize the non-aggression principle so I can be safe and you can be safe. Those were the two things I thought that were really missing, sort of an argument for solidarity and a Christian, I'm sorry, an anthropology of, that, that supported her vision of the human person. And it was in Christianity that I found the answer to both in the incarnation, that the second person of the Trinity became a human being. Really, it was meditating on that in those centuries that followed, that theologians and philosophers began to get a glimpse I say that liberalism was 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 birthed in a manger in Bethlehem, mm. and that, that was this sort of profound personalism, this profound solidarity, this profound respect for freedom, and and universalism. That it was no longer a tribal god, right. the death of tribal gods, and so I, I saw that, and I also saw this beauty, beautiful solidarity. And it, for me, it was just an, an aching and a longing, I guess, because no one was there for my child. Mm. No one was there for my girlfriend. Mm. Um, I wasn't there. I was in Fort Benning, Georgia, you know, on Sand Hill. So I just, I felt compelled to be there for everyone I could. Join us for part three of this conversation with Jason Scott Jones and Check our episode notes for links to his organizations, his own podcast, and his book, The Race to Save Our Century, Five Core Principles to Promote Peace, Freedom, and a Culture of Life. And please consider supporting our podcast, if you're enjoying it, at Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash choose life abort war. And remember, choose peace, choose justice, and choose life that we might live. Choose peace that we might see a tomorrow. Let justice roll, roll like a river, flow like a river down.